I mean, it's kind of cute, right? Hello and welcome back to Kind of Cute and if you are new here, welcome. I'm your host Bailey Edmond and on Kind of Cute we discuss articles from The Cut and my general pop culture musings. So sorry I'm late this week guys. I honestly just had a shit ass week. It's one of those weeks where it feels like Mercury's in retrograde but you can't even blame it on that because it's not. So you're getting a nice little weekend treat I hope. Let's start out with talking about how Blackpink released their music video for Ice Cream. It just released last night, and when I checked earlier today, it already had 57 million views. And Selena Gomez does the song with them, so she's in the music video too. But you can tell that they obviously shot it separately because they are never in a shot together. But it's such a fun video, 100%. My friend Megan texted me the merch, and it's so adorable. But why I'm talking about this is not just because it's an absolute bop and a stunning music video. It's also because Elena pointed out to me that Selena also created an ice cream with serendipity inspired by the new single. So this is, you know, a little brand deal she has with them that she's probably making buku bucks from. It's a vanilla ice cream with crunchy cookie bits and gooey fudge. Yum. Our girl Selena is just a full-fledged businesswoman, so props to her. And... I know I'm giving my friends some shout outs right now, but they told me relevant stuff. Tasha says that she watches Selena's show on HBO and described it as a nice mindless watch, which is precisely my idea of fun and good TV, especially right now. I have an update for you guys. Remember when we talked about Sarah Turney and how she was trying to get her dad arrested for the disappearance of her sister, Alyssa? And while she's been trying to get press around it for years it really blew up when she took to tiktok well it finally happened and he was charged with second degree homicide and i'm very happy for sarah because i really think she had a big hand in making that happen Katy perry and orlando bloom had their baby girl and i think we all knew that that baby was going to be called some kind of flower bloom and sure enough We've got a Daisy Bloom, middle name Dove. Dove seems to be a really hot name right now. Is it inspired by the actress Dove Cameron? Because Teddy Mellencamp also just named her most recent little girl Dove. I don't know. I don't know why it's like really in right now. But speaking of Real Housewives, did you see that Dorinda got the axe from Real Housewives of New York? And I know this season wasn't a great look on her, but damn, I have to say I am sad. She just brought so much to the show. She was such an integral part of it alas i think we're gonna get a lot of cast shakeups going into this next season of the real housewives y'all we haven't done a deep dive in a while but this story enthralled me so i hope you find some interest in it too and i love niche influencer crap so this isn't surprising in the least bit that i would be drawn to this story And I want to start by saying that we are pulling from a lot of sources today. We have The Cut, we have The New York Times, we have Business Insider, we have Emily and Tanya's Instagram accounts, we have The Today Show that we're kind of pulling all this stuff from. Um, Because I wanted to try to give a somewhat researched and balanced view as much as I could. And again, we're going deeper into this than we usually do, but sit back and enjoy. Unpacking the F-Factor Diet Drama by Madeline Agler is the cut article we have. But I want to give you some pretty extensive background information before we dive into any of the articles. So Tanya Zuckerbrot is a 48-year-old woman. She is a registered dietitian, and she started the F-Factor Diet. She came out with her first book in 2006, and it was called The F-Factor Diet, Discover the Secret to Permanent Weight Loss. Now, the general premise of the book, from my understanding, because... 
I have heard Tanya interviewed on a podcast, but I haven't read her book, is that fiber is a miracle carb. And as someone whose family follows a pretty restrictive low-carb diet, and I myself have dabbled in, in it, you were always told that when you're calculating carbs, you calculate your net carbs per day. And you get that number by taking your total number of carbs in a food and you subtract the fiber from the total carbs to get your net number. And the reasoning behind that is that fiber is an indigestible carb. And I don't know the science behind that, but whatever, that's what you're always told. So I have a feeling that Tanya saw this concept being really popularized, you know, with the Atkins diet and realized, hmm, maybe I can leverage the role of fiber into my own diet program and her knowledge as an RD. And as we all know at this point, the wellness and the diet industries are huge ass money makers. So in her book, Tanya just emphasized the importance of fiber and it was sort of this high fiber, low carb approach. You start with a two week series where you stay under 35 net carbs and you reach 35 grams of fiber. And then you increase you know, the amount of carbs as the weeks go on, which is popular in a lot of low carb diets. And she says, you know, the increase in fiber, it helps you stay full. And it's probably worth noting that this is higher than the 25 to 30 grams that are recommended by the American Heart Association, but not by much. And I would generally agree that Americans are often not getting a ton of fiber in their diet. And I'm not saying the American Heart Association is the end all be all of knowledge on this subject, but I just wanted to point it out for you guys. And The book also emphasized that while increasing fiber, it's also important to up your water intake so you don't get constipated and to maybe introduce the increased fiber slowly because when your system's not used to it, it might cause cramps and bloating. And this particular diet, I'm going to generalize here, appealed to a lot of women because it says you don't have to exercise and you can drink alcohol. I mean, yeah, sign me up. That's my kind of diet. So personally, in my non-registered dietitian mind, I don't think there is anything technically wrong with this approach. And when Tanya wrote her book back in 2006, she recommended things like Scandinavian Gigi crackers for increasing fiber intake. And she had no stock in those crackers. She doesn't own them. And just to go back to what I was saying, like obviously no exercise and alcohol sounds great to me, but I'm not saying that's like the healthiest thing we can do for ourselves. Clearly exercising and limiting or full-on giving up alcohol is probably better for our bodies. I'm not doing it anytime soon, but I, I realize that. So I think the real problem for Tanya started in 2018 when she began peddling her own high-fiber powders and bars, which honestly most famous dietitians do. They'll peddle some sort of you know diet substitute, not necessarily high-fiber powders, but so many dietitians have their own protein powders, like nut butter type packets, stuff like that. So I don't think this is a particularly rare step to take. So Business Insider says that the F-Factor bars and powders pack 20 grams of fiber and protein per serving. That's more fiber than two Fiber One bars and as much protein as a double patty hamburger. Now let's bring in Emily Gellis Land. She is at Emily Gellis on Instagram. Emily is a fashion influencer. She has great style. I'm so into it. And from what I've read, she doesn't buy into diet culture in general. And she has this sort of like no fucks given attitude that I appreciate in influencers I follow. Uh, Of course, it's just a style in and of itself. But I like that kind of attitude versus the like 
Danny Austins of the world who are like, oh my God, I had like one patch of bald hair. So now I'm the wig girl. I just wear wigs all the time. And I'm not here to bash on anyone, but I'm just saying that style is not my style of influencer. So just to show my own biases here. So Emily's never tried the factor diet, but she saw some anonymous Instagram accounts basically decrying this diet. And according to the cut article in mid April, she says she saw an anonymous tip on Instagram that said that Zuckerbrot had suggested to a private client of hers that they stop taking antidepressants if the antidepressants caused weight gain. Now, Tanya vehemently denies this claim to the the Times. She says that it was a lie and that this never happened and it never would happen. But after Emily kind of brought this up on her stories, she started receiving tons of DMs from people explaining the struggles they had themselves with the F-Factor diet. And Emily has said that she just sees herself as a vehicle to share other women's stories. And some people have criticized Emily by saying she hasn't taken a journalistic approach to this or verified any of the stories that she's receiving over DMs. But she's not a journalist, and I'm not sure that that's really her role in all of this. I mean... I feel like her role was to get this story to have attention and to maybe get some justice for people who have allegedly been sickened by these products and struggled with this. So Emily started reposting the mostly women's stories, although there's definitely men involved too, and she's reposted their stories as well to her own Instagram stories. And she would usually do this anonymously. However, anyone who was writing her could choose to be on the record. And many nutritionists have chosen to do that and registered dietitians. And from my perusal of her messages, tons of the women who messaged her, which I believe is over 2000 at this point, involved abdominal issues and various skin rashes like hives, which they say came from ingesting the powders and balls, bars. However, (laughs) just casually ingesting balls. Um, However, people have said tons of other symptoms have arised too, like extreme stomach pain, red bumps, hair loss, migraines. I mean, the list kind of goes on. Now, before we get too in the woods in this, I want to point out the obvious that correlation doesn't equal causation. I'm not saying that these particular powders cause this. And maybe all these people do have a whey protein allergy, which Tanya talks about later on. We'll get to that. Who knows? But are the numbers and stories pretty compelling, even though they're completely anecdotal? I'd say hell yeah. So Business Insider said that she told them, Tanya told Insider, that her company, F-Factor, deleted negative comments from its Instagram page. Now, this has been a big thing with online scandals recently, where People and influencers are deleting comments and a lot of people are taking an issue with this because they say it's silencing important voices. This actually came a lot up a lot with the Black Lives Matter movement and influencers deleting negative comments on their account and people were saying, well, you're you're now literally silencing people of color because you don't like what they're saying about you, which is leading to this whole other issue. And I think people are kind of taking the same stance with this. It's like, well, we're coming to you and telling you we had a problem with your product, but then you're going to delete it from the own company's page and then not give anyone else a chance to see it and learn from what we went through. So Tanya says, we felt we were following community guidelines when it was slander. When people say your products have lead and are poisoning people 
or I lost my period and we know that there's absolutely zero correlation between our product and those claims, why would you leave that there? Okay, in my opinion, that's not slander, but regardless, that's her take on it. Then the other thing that's really sparked some interest in people is some of the messages say that they have tested for high levels of lead in their blood. So, you know, heavy metal poisoning, basically. And this was told again to Emily Gellis on her Instagram page. But Insider points out that they weren't able to independently corroborate these claims with medical practitioners. This led to people wanting a certificate of analysis from the F-Factor company producing the powders and the bars. And this brings us to another huge point of contention here. When all of these stories started coming out and Emily's Insta was blowing up, people started demanding F-Factor to show the certificate of analysis, which is basically a quality assurance document that makes sure a product meets its promised specifications. So for a while when this started to blow up, F-Factor was refusing to release their COA because they said it contained proprietary information, i.e. like special ingredients, you know, things they use that they didn't want to share, basically like trade secret stuff. And to be fair, it probably does include that. So they finally did publish a COA. Now, this is where it gets a little more suspicious because people were saying that the document itself looked suspicious, like it didn't have the right seals on it, the necessary information that a COA would include. Now, I know nothing about COAs other than what I just told you, so I can't speak to that, but there are people out there saying that it don't look right. And the other thing that people brought up was that they were mad that they only released a COA for the least popular fiber powder flavor. So one that less people had complaints about because less people were buying it. Now, another reason besides these reports of, you know, heavy metal poisoning and people just wanting to see what was on the COA, they also wanted to see it because these products have a Prop 65 warning on them. And Prop 65 is a California law regarding lead. And honestly, I own a few things in my house that I've bought with this warning on it. I have a Berkeley mug that I got from when Elena went to school there. I have some, uh, how do you say, Furukame? Rakame seasoning that has a Prop 65 warning on it. Now, I think for a kake, thank you. So people put it on products more as a liability thing so that they don't get sued. That's my understanding of it. I could be completely off on that, but I think it's more, you know, like when you put on a hairdryer, like don't put this in the water. It's like, yeah, no shit, but like I have to put it on there so I don't get sued. I think Prop 65, how strict it is, there's some similarities with that. And I don't think it's necessarily a sign that a product has tons of lead in it. But Emily says there's some independent testing going on at the products and it's being performed now to see the actual material makeup of them. So maybe we can get an update after that comes to light. But throughout all of this, Tanya has completely stood by her products. She said, the one thing I know with certainty is F-Factor as a program is safe and sound. And we also have thousands of clients that we have helped to lose weight. She has also repeatedly stated that in 176,000 sales of her products, only 50 people have complained about stomach issues or highs, and that's 0.03%. And she believes that all those people, the 50 that have reported issues directly to F-Factor, she just thinks they have whey allergies. Now, before I forget, another thing about this that I noticed 
through reading a lot of the messages that were sent to Emily, it seems like people didn't immediately make the connection between these products and why they were having hives or stomach issues. But then when they started reading the messages, it kind of set off a light bulb like, oh, maybe that was what was causing it. Or people realizing when they went off of it that the problems went away. So I also have to interject here that Tanya makes bank. Like she lives in a $22 million Park Avenue apartment. She has celebrity and clients like Katie Couric. And apparently people have paid her as much as $25,000 for help on their diets, according to the Times. And her husband is also a corporate real estate investor, which probably doesn't hurt either. Literally, guys, if I was making that much money, I just wouldn't work. I would just rip these freaking F-Factor products off the table and go take a nap for a little bit. I would just do this podcast and that would be my life. Like seriously, I think she said, I don't really think she has to worry that much, but anyways. So Tanya also spoke pretty degradingly about Emily and I don't particularly appreciate it when anyone minimizes a woman's voice. So let's, let's look at what she said. This is talking about Emily. I believe in her mind she thinks she's helping people and that the lifestyle I lead is poisoning everyone and giving them anorexia. This is what Tanya said. But she's a fashion blogger. She doesn't work for the World Health Organization. If this was Barbara Walters, maybe I would have paid attention sooner. But this is a young woman who has no credential in health and wellness or any medical or clinical experience. The girl sells clothing for a living. I mean... (laughs) It's just so dismissive. And was that cleared with her PR people first? Like, it's it's not really a good look for Tanya. Like, I totally get her point, And I don't think Emily has ever said she has credentials in health or wellness. But it just comes across as a little aggressive and it's not a good look. Emily said in the same article that she just wishes that F-Factor would acknowledge the physical and emotional pain that the women have been through. But that's not how the story goes. All right, let's get to another juicy ass part of this story, which I thought the su- the cut sums up nicely. Okay, so Emily received messages from women saying that the F-Factor diet and products had caused them to miscarry. These allegations were cited in multiple news stories, but one of the claims the Times found was a hoax. So it was in an email to Tanya and Eva Chen, and I just have to say why the hell was Eva Chen brought into this, but maybe it's just because she's a high up person at Instagram. She's head of like the fashion side of it. So a lady named Allison Brett Schneider, who is 44 years old, so why she's engaging in this nonsense, who the hell knows? She's a former Instagram influencer, apparently, and she emails Tanya and Eva Chin saying that she made up the miscarriage story and that, quote, it's a full out lie. I have never used Tanya's products. So she emailed Tanya and Eva from an email called crazycancelculture at gmail.com. And she explained to the Times that she did this because she was the target of Instagram bullying back in summer 2018. After Rachel Cargill posted about the killing of a young black woman, Nia Wilson, at a BART station in Oakland, California. I'm sure a ton of you are familiar with Rachel Cargill. I follow her. She's a amazing voice, has taught me a lot about racial issues, and she's great. That's whatever I can say. I, I She posts, I guess, what some people would deem as controversial stuff because she doesn't like sugarcoat it, but that's her prerogative. 
So she wrote, I'm waiting for your fave white feminist to post about Neo Wilson. That's what Rachel Cargill wrote. So Brett Schneider, this girl Allison, who wrote this crazy email about, or wrote the crazy message to Emily about it being a miscarriage, and then wrote to Eva Chin and Tanya that, haha, like, I tricked her. So she, back in 2018, ran a Instagram page called At 25 Park. And she became really defensive about what Rachel Cargill posted. And she called Rachel shameful and a clown and accused her of alienating women. She also threatened Rachel's followers. And some say she even reached out to Rachel's employers to complain about them. Oh, no, I'm sorry, about Rachel's followers. She reached out to their employers. So basically, she was doxing these people, which is, I've talked on here before, how I think that's like the worst, like lowliest thing you can do to someone. And... Then Allison's Instagram account was suspended for bullying, and now she is suing Instagram. Like, for what? Honey, what are your damages? Get on a different platform. Get your own website. All right, so that's just some backstory about that, like, this Allison chick has been involved in some drama before and clearly was still holding a grudge about it, especially since she's now suing Instagram. So I guess, like, she thought by somehow proving that fake messages could be sent to Emily and Emily would repost them, that it would just invalidate everything else that Emily had been doing. So Allison told the Times that she planted the story because she couldn't stand silently by and watch Tanya be attacked by people on Instagram. But guys, here is the real ass kicker. Allison's cousin, Amanda Karp, is F Factor's head dietitian. But as Madeline writes for The Cut, she's sure that's just a coincidence. I mean, come on. But now I've heard rumors that Amanda Karp has actually been fired. I don't know if that's ever been confirmed, but I've heard some rumblings. And apparently this Allison chick is still pissed about everything. She says that she's the last person who is racist. She said on the phone while driving her children in the Hamptons. I swear I didn't insert that. Like that's what the Times article says. She says, I'm like AOC. My whole Instagram was known for speaking up. Earlier this year, she said she spent a month in Alabama trying to prevent the execution of Nathaniel Woods. And she said that she sent the email because someone had to sacrifice themselves. Like... (laughs) Can someone explain to me why she thought that was a good idea? And some of these quotes from the Times, guys, I just cannot. Like this one. Elizabeth Savetsky, an influencer, has been doing F-Factor since becoming a client of Tanya's in 2018. I had heard amazing things about it from my fellow mamas on the Upper East Side, Miss Savetsky34 wrote in an email. She said she had experienced a second pregnancy loss and was suffering with other health issues before she found the diet. But on the diet, she said her lifelong issues around food went out the window. And I mean, good for her and obviously suffering a pregnancy loss is horrible but fellow upper east side mamas like that that sounds like onion article territory like what the hell is that and I think there's a whole other layer to this I think people are genuinely just mad about the culture that Tanya endorses for example on her Instagram in 2013 she had posts like how to lose weight, question mark, turn your head left, then right, and then do this exercise whenever you are offered food. I mean, ugh, it's not a great look. And then she had like a picture of like a, a girl like a, in a bikini, just like the torso and was like, would you really prefer a bag of chips over this? I mean, it's just, it screams a tatty bit disordered. And on top of that, she's also the official dietitian to the Miss Universe organization, 
which correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that organization is the most progressive thing on earth. So I don't know. I also thought this quote from the Times was a real kicker. It says, it's talking about the merch that the F Factor has on their website. And it says, among the half shirts and sweatshirts sold on their diet's website, there is an F Factor intentions bracelet to be worn on the hand that will either undermine your intentions or honor them. As it, quote, holds the fork, reaches for the bread basket, or dips into the candy dish. It costs $18. Now, I looked on the site, and I couldn't see anything any longer about the candy dish or whatever, and I tried to use the Wayback Machine, which is that thing where you can search for old pages on the internet, but it had sadly only crawled this website in August 2020, probably because it was getting more traction, so it was like, okay, let's see what's up. Uh, So I guess I'll take the Times word for it, and it does still say the thing about honoring your intentions, and it's just a weird and ugly thing green thread with a gold f on it like why anyone would pay 18 dollars for it i do not know but okay and again tanya has stood by her brand throughout this through her instagram post through a today show appearance that emily also did but who knows we'll see where this goes it'll i'm sure this will die down in a little bit but i really do think tanya's gonna have to do some major pr work and maybe even do a rehaul on what she's offering on her site. And one of the last things I wanted to talk about is the disgusting comments that I've seen that Emily's been getting because she'll repost them. And a lot of times it's about Emily being Jewish and Emily's a proud Jewish woman. It says it like in her Instagram bio. And strangely enough, Tanya is also Jewish. So I'm kind of like, why are the people who are supposedly trying to support Tanya coming at Emily over something that A, is just so anti-Semitic and gross, and at the same time, like, the person you're allegedly defending is also Jewish. And then she gets, like, psycho messages like this. Like, here, here's one. It says, you think Tanya is bad? I have a story. Why don't you tell everybody about your experience at your ex's house in West Hampton when they had you committed? Remember, your family had to stage an intervention? We have the videos. Why don't you share that before we do? You are batshit. Remember being on the table strapped down? You were committed to a mental institution and still belong there. Psycho. And so Emily posted on that. She's like, I heard this was the game we play. Send anonymous accounts to try and dig up stories about me to intimidate me. Nah, won't work. Thanks for the love. And she says, none of this is true, but now you see how F Factor plays dirty. Play on, playa. She says she doesn't have an ex who has a house in West Hampton. Maybe next time do a fact check. And I just don't see why this has become a thing lately. We saw the same thing happen when Ramona was trying to shame Leah about her mental health issues. And bringing that up on national TV, as much as... I feel comfortable being open about my mental health, and I think Leah does too, but someone else doesn't, shouldn't have the opportunity to voice that for you. That should be an independent decision that you get to make whether or not you want to put that out there. And I think um, Tasha was also telling me how the same thing happened on Below Deck, and I don't watch that, but I think a really similar thing happened where someone was kind of shamed over things she was using for her mental health. So I hope that is not a trend that continues because it's very disgusting. So that is that story for now. Did you guys like this deep dive? You know I don't do a lot of long form on here, like I said, but let me know if you'd like more. And uh, I didn't want to leave you with just one story today, so we have two more. The next one's a little (laughs) dark as well, but I promise we'll end with something light. So it's called The Progressive New Face of Boys Will Be Boys by Sarah Jones. Now, I am definitely not as educated about politics as I should be, 
nor as educated as I am about niche influencer culture, but I didn't know about this story, so maybe you didn't either, and I found it fascinating on multiple layers. Aaron Coleman is 19 years old. He is practically a newborn baby. I've said it on here so much, I should just put it on a shirt at this point, but boys' prefrontal cortex and their brains are not fully developed until around the age of 26. For some, it happens a little earlier, some later, and the prefrontal cortex, it aids in decision and impulse control. So frankly, I'm not sure if 19-year-olds should be able to run for office. Uh, But fortunately, Aaron ran for governor of Kansas at age of 17, and after that, they uh, luckily raised the age that you can run for governor to 25 years old. So at least they're a little more developed at that point. Nonetheless, Aaron ran in the Democratic primary in Kansas, and he defeated a seven-term incumbent for a state house seat by 14 votes. Literally, 14 votes. And leading up to this election, some saw him as sort of having like an AOC trajectory, you know, young, progressive, etc. And you may be thinking, big whoop, a 19-year-old want to see in Kansas. Okay, but here's where it gets hella complicated. Aaron has admitted he harassed girls online when he was in middle school, which you figure was what, six years ago? He called a sixth grade girl fat and that she should kill herself. And then seven years ago, he threatened a 13-year-old girl that he would send around nudes of her if he didn't send her more nudes. So she had like sent him one over Snapchat and then he blackmailed her into sending more. Ugh. And this happened to a girl who's now a woman named Katie Hampton. And she stated, I just don't think he needs to be in a powerful position considering what he's done to girls. She added, it's good that he admitted to what he did. But another woman said that he would relentlessly call her at home to the point of harassment. Now, in case you're thinking these are just allegations, oh, no, 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 honey. Aaron has admitted that these claims are accurate. On top of that, one woman claims that she was his ex-girlfriend and that he choked and slapped her, and this happened just last year, and threatened to kill her if she ever got pregnant and told her that he hoped she got abducted and raped. So when some of these early allegations were coming to life, Aaron said that he was going to withdraw from the race. But then he changed his mind real quick, clearly, since he won the primary. And I wanted to share this story because the mistreatment of women, it doesn't know political parties, it doesn't know age or anything like that. And I think the supporters of Coleman who wanted to see him win for the left in Kansas were quick to say, like we've heard many times before, like, oh, let's not ruin his life. And... I had the same thought about what I'm about to tell you about Brett Kavanaugh. Being a Supreme Court justice is like the ultimate privilege in this country. And not allowing someone to have that position is not ruining someone's life. Brett would have been A-OK if he had not been appointed. He would have probably still been a judge and just gone about his merry old life and been completely fine. And that's how I feel about this story. Making people responsible for their past actions it isn't always about cancel culture or ruining their life but it's showing sometimes that you can't keep certain privileges and enjoy those when you've acted so heinously and especially in his case when (sighs) this didn't even happen that long ago not that it matters but literally uh, last year he's choking his girlfriend and now he has a state house seat like that should just not be allowed Okay, I need a palate cleanser after that, so I wanted to share this fun little story by our girl, Sanjita. How is a sex scene not like eating a sandwich? So Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan are starring in an upcoming lesbian period piece together called Ammonite. 
I'm probably saying that completely wrong, but it's spelled like that. Now, this movie sounds like my ultimate nightmare. Nothing against the lesbian nature of it. I just do not like period pieces whatsoever. But I thought this story was relevant since we recently chatted about intimacy coordinators. So in an interview, Kate said that Saoirse and I choreographed the scenes ourselves. It's definitely not like eating a sandwich. Saoirse and I, we just felt really safe. Director Francis was naturally very nervous and I just said to him, listen, let us work it out. And we did. We'll start here. We'll do this with the kissing, boobs. You go down there. Then you do this. Then you climb up here. I mean, we marked out the beats of the scene so that we were anchored in something that just supported the narrative. I felt the proudest I've ever felt doing a love scene on Ammonite and I felt by far the least self-conscious. Okay, that's lovely, but fortunately for us, Sanjita is also curious what she means by not like eating a sandwich. So the first theory they put forth is that it calls back to a 2006 quote from Guillermo del Toro where he said, I say making movies is like eating a sandwich of shit. Sometimes you get more bread, sometimes less bread, but you always get shit. Okay, theory number one. Next theory is that it was alluding to the act of oral sex and saying it was not like eating a sandwich. Now, I don't think this is the case because as we learn from the intimacy coordinator discussion, all this stuff is stimulated. So sis ain't eating nothing. She's still hungry, probably. So another theory, which I think is the one that wins, is that Kate was saying this was a little complicated, not a simple task like eating a sandwich. (laughs) So that's my vote. This article also points out that Kate said F, uh, the F word eight times during the interview that this little soundbite comes from. So I don't know. Maybe she was just feeling a little reckless that day. What are your thoughts? I watched the trailer and again, I will one hundo not be seeing this. So please report back if you do. Don't like the word. What is it? Cheap tourist fodder. Beautiful. And we have finally made it to legit shit for today. I never forgot how good Biscoff cookies are, but maybe you did. So just like I reminded you about Raisinets, I wanted to remind you about Biscoff cookies. You were probably exposed to them on an airplane. Delta and United serve them. And actually, United recently replaced them with Oreo Thin, so RIP to the Biscoff. Poor choice. Even though I do prefer the ratio of an Oreo Thin to a regular Oreo. What do you guys think? Back to Biscoff, Uh, I get mine from Publix. I got the last pack I got from Walgreens. They have them a lot of places now, but in case you can't find them, I'm linking them um, on Amazon in the show notes so you can order some and have them with a cup of tea, your morning coffee, a midnight snack. Thank you guys again for listening, reviewing, rating. Remember that you can go to ratethispodcast.com slash kind of cute to leave a review. This pod, please feel free to share it with a friend. And... I will see you next week. Bye.